Welcome to the DTB podcast for September 2019, volume 57, number nine. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Now, in this month's editorial, David, you've written about social prescribing. Now, this is a, a new thing, something perhaps that Andrew Herxheim would never have heard of. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what social prescribing is? Yes, thank you. Social prescribing, a high-profile issue for health services at the moment, and certainly in England there's a big focus on it. It's one part of the NHS's long-term plan, and it's really about what they consider is offering people a kind of personalised care package. And the model that's being developed involves employing link workers, known as social prescribers, to whom people can be referred from a variety of sources, including general practice. And the idea being that the patient and the link worker discuss this whole series of problems or issues that might be affecting the person's health and well-being and come up with a sort of plan to address these with sort of non-medical interventions. Typically, might refer people to a community group or to an activity that might help them tackle some of the, the problems that they've identified. And, and certainly it's a significant investment. Yeah, I think the NHS is talking about recruiting up to a 1,000 link workers by 2023. So it sounds, I mean, as you say, it sounds like a good idea, this idea that we perhaps take um, the medical model out of a lot of the issues that patients come to see medical doctors about. And we recognise, I think, that so much of multi-comorbidity is about lifestyle. So I think we, we can see that that may be a, a right idea but in in your heading you you talk about it being the right idea but possibly the wrong name so can you explain why you feel it may not be a good term to use and i guess it's something about prescribing it's a very neat term to use it it, it people recognize prescribing as the end of a consultation it's something that when you've seen a medical practitioner you're given something to go away with and that that's you know typically a, a prescription for for a medicine but by calling the output of, of this process, social prescribing, it run, seems to run the risk of of over-medicalizing the, the process and re-emphasizing the fact that every time you see a, a medical practitioner or a healthcare professional, there has to be something given to you at the end of it, which is a prescription. So how much are we reinforcing the model that every intervention ends with a prescription? And it's just maybe a different terminology or, or not even using the word prescribing at all would, would have been a better approach. Thank you, David. I think it's a, it's a really important area and something which primary care networks will be involved in a lot over the next couple of years. So what else have we got uh, in the bulletin this month? So our main article this month is a drug review, and a drug that people will be familiar with, an old drug but in a, a new formulation. James, tell us a bit more about it. Yes, this is this is. I think I think this is quite exciting. So this is naloxone, which obviously has been around for many years. It's a competitive opioid antagonist and is is really used extensively in patients who've had drug poisoning, overdose with opioids in particular, um, where it can combat the, the the side effects of overdose. But what's different about this product is that it's actually a nasal spray, a single-use nasal spray, um, licensed for use in opioid overdose. And the particular details of the license say that it can be used in both medical and non-clinical facilities. Yeah, this is this is the bit that's, I think, different in the sense that they've now introduced new regulations that allow it to be supplied 
without a prescription, even though this is a prescription-only medicine, but only in certain situations, um, in situations where perhaps commissioned drug treatment services can offer it to patients or possible members of the same household, with the plan being that if you can have this medicine available to people and they're properly trained how to use it, we might reduce the terrible number of deaths that we're seeing from opioid overdose. So this whole initiative, which which has been so successful in... Uh, supplying naloxone in any form to to carers, patients, or uh, friends of people who might be at risk of, of overdoses has clearly worked. But what's different about this product? What what do they use at the moment? Well, now of course it's injectable, usually intramuscular injection. So it's usually a case of having to draw up the medicine or having um, syringes ready filled. But having to use a needle is the bit that some you know is just makes it a little bit more difficult, perhaps, to access that treatment. So by using uh, nasal spray, the idea is that it's much easier for bystanders to use. And the evidence that was used to support its licensing? Yeah, so they looked at two elements. First of all, they just checked to see, for example, in, in healthy volunteers, how quickly you developed bioavailability of the drug. So that was a, one approach. And then also they've done some studies looking at how long it's taken in the community comparing intramuscular with intranasal treatments for patients to, for example, achieve a respiratory rate over 10 per minute. So they've done a number of sort of outcome studies like that. And what those studies show, obviously they're not blinded, but what they seem to show is that, yes, intramuscular still seems to have quicker bioavailability, but actually intranasal treatment works and, you know, probably is equally as good given that the only good drug is the one that's given correctly and given in time. And clearly, as with any intervention like this, the, the most important thing is to, is to call for help first before you start administering. But are there any questions over whether this formulation is effective? Are there any situations in which you might be slightly anxious? Yeah, so there, there are two issues. One, obviously, is, is raised a, a lot is about, you know, does septal perforation have an impact on the bioavailability? And the feeling is no. The study uh, authors suggest that actually a nasal septum only makes up about 8% of the total surface area for absorption of this drug. So that's not an issue. There is some concern that if you have nasal secretions, particularly if you've um, had a respiratory arrest or you are having a respiratory failure, you might develop a foamy discharge in the nose and that may well prevent the treatment working. But uh, there are some very good uh, videos available attached to the summary product characteristics that are training aids for people. So I think the plan will be that people will be adequately trained to use this. But it is something that's been trialled both in Norway and uh, in the USA and does seem to have a high success rate. So really quite a positive approach. Absolutely, which is why I think right from the start, I think I think this is good. I think, you know, I even as a GP, this is something I might better carry in my bag. And perhaps when we get around to redoing our black bag <laughs> drugs list, will this appear on that list? Well, it'll be interesting to see. But I think it is a sort of thing which if you're involved on a day to day basis and you have contact with patients who might have had opioid overdoses, this certainly seems a very compact and simple way of being able to provide help in those situations. But clearly training, training, training to make sure absolutely, people know how absolutely. to use it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And this month we've got a, a, another from a series of, of case reports. This one looks at what? So this is um, a case report of a patient who was admitted with a left-sided stroke but actually was taking dabigatran for his atrial fibrillation. And this case report looked at the decision-making around whether they ought to reverse the action of his dabigatran using one of the, well, the, the only humanized monoclonal antibody license fit, which is Idaru C 
Zumab. So, of course, the interest in this is that of use of the antidotes to, to the newer drugs is very limited. And what do we know what the guidelines say about their use? Yeah, so, so it's interesting. Uh, actually, the guidelines suggested if you have a patient who's taking directly acting oral anticoagulants, you should not use thrombolysis in these patients. So it's contraindicated in, in them. I think this was an interesting case because actually what had happened with this patient in particular is he'd actually stopped his dabagatran three days before he developed his stroke. And then on developing his symptoms, he thought, oh, I better take one. So he actually took one. So he was on a sort of when they did the blood test, they could demonstrate that it was functioning and that he had levels of dabigatran in his bloodstream, but they obviously felt it was reasonable to try to reverse it and then to thrombolize him. And it's really just demonstrated that actually that decision they took was effective. The uh, thrombolysis worked and this patient had a good outcome. They talk a little bit about the issues around cost because of course aridocizumab is about two and a half thousand pounds a dose and they use two doses in this case and in most cases you'd use two doses so you've got a, a not only a, a risk concern about doing this but also quite a considerable cost concern because i think it, when we reviewed the use of these drugs and how to manage bleeding with them we highlighted then that partly there's limited experience with the antidotes but also the, the high cost it'd be interesting to see what happens in the longer term. I mean, these may be relatively infrequent episodes, but even so, now that experience is developing with them, what will the guidelines say? And actually, will somebody need to do a cost-effective analysis to see whether it's a, a reasonable use of resources? I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the CHADS VAS scoring and what we use, if you've got someone who's got a 4% risk, let's say, over 10 years of having a, a stroke and you put them on a DOAC as a result of that, that probably reduces it to around 1% to 2%. So 1% to 2% of people on a DOAC are likely to have a stroke in 10 years. So I think we're going to see a, in, in a huge increase in, in this conundrum for clinicians. And I think obviously what you want to be able to do is, is make sure that you get a, the cost-benefit and risk balance absolutely right. So at some point the guidelines are going to have to catch up with the technology. That's as always, used. probably, yes, indeed. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.